Let us put it to you like this. The world as we find it today is very particular, but has changed radically all throughout history. What we are trying to do is to turn some of the sentiments of mainstream discourse on their head and dare to ask the interesting and powerful questions and to do our best to come to some answers that are up to the challenge. People who believe that our world, civilization, and societies are so close to perfect that not much should be changed are not the moderate realists they so often claim. Those who take seriously the inequities and problems that confront us today base their analysis in systemic critique and attempt to solve these crises with forward-looking change are a part of our movement. Today we find ourselves in crisis. A crisis of climate breakdown, a crisis of pandemic, and a crisis of capitalism. Don't let the repetition of the word blind you to its urgency. We are in crisis. To be on the left is to try to understand this context and open our minds to a new reality and a future that is possible to create together. Our political imaginations have been under assault by the ruling classes for too long. As a collective, we can begin to dream again of a better world. We have come a long way as a species, but we have so much further to go. If we look at our systems today and think they are not good enough, it is our duty to change them. We have access today to an unfathomable wealth of information and new kinds of connection that people in the history of mankind never have had before. We can learn from history and create the future together. The pandemic has woken a lot of people up to these things, and the political conversation is already changing, with governments across the world investing more and in new ways. The Biden administration in America just passed a stimulus package that they say will cut national childhood poverty in half. These are all choices, so why not eliminate it all? Poverty is a necessary foundation on which our current system is built. Let's transition to one where this is not the case. It can be done. Capitalism has taken us this far and provided us with the resources and tools we need to transform the world, to centre the social needs of us all and the ecological needs of the planet. We have made the world this way and we could just as easily make it differently. It is not cynicism that makes us look at our world today and say this isn't good enough. It's our optimism that tomorrow can be better. This is our future and we are now the adults in the room. If you think none of this is possible, then you are part of the problem. Why not try and be part of the solution? We can be a united movement with different tactics and all have something to teach us. Critique is a positive iterative process of growth from where we happen to be to where we want to go. From decarceration and abolition around the world to domestic policy and electoralism at home, trip with us as we figure out how to do just that. Our bridge from here to a better world will be built from tactics, organizing, discourse, and concrete policy sets. Let's examine some proposals for momentum today. Welcome. Episode five. It's right this time. I got it right. <laughs> um, that was really good. I really, really like that. Um, I took a few notes because I thought they'd be good jumping off points. But then again, the main jumping point is the momentum piece that you reference in, in itself. And I think what we're going to do today is go through those. Before we do, very quickly, I'm Tom and I'm with Fred. Yeah, we remembered. We're getting good. And we are tripping to the left. 
and exploring new ideas, having a conversation about them, figuring out sort of where we even find ourselves in relation to them. And And we're going to try and get a bit concrete today and talk about some specific policies. Yeah. So to paint the picture, we are both self-confessed Labour members Mm-hmm. And uh, for now, <laughs> there's a <laughs> there's a slight shame in that I feel with yeah. Keir Starmer at the moment, <laughs> yeah. which is a which is a shame in and of itself. And I was just thinking about this earlier because that's something which people who were in the Labour Party or people on the left who are in the Labour Party under Blair, mm. like this, is, is, they're very used to this idea that pretty much the head of the party is a kind of enemy of the party as they see it. But since I only joined under Corbyn. And you only joined more recently. It's quite strange, really, to have the leader of the party almost in oftentimes direct opposition to yeah. the kind of socialist is that members. A, a key sort of trait of new Labour, and this is like complete blind asking. Like, I mean, I, I mean, when was New Labour again? And I feel like it's sort of mm. Blairish sort of time, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a really important moment actually in in politics because yeah, New Labour was this kind of attempt to triangulate between a left politics and like a a winning electoral strategy where he kind of pretty much came to the right as far as he could without you know whatever his kind of ideas were without breaking them Mm. i suppose pundits would call it a center left but i mean you know he went into iraq and stuff like it's quite safe to say center right or something depending on how you define the center but that whole movement and it happened in america as well as it is often the case like with thatcher and reagan as the beginning of neoliberalism and then this idea of the third way where he's triangulating through the middle we don't need this left politics. We don't need this right politics. This new left, this new labor will come through the middle. And he did amazingly well because he got all the tabloid press on his yeah. side. And that was the same with Bill Clinton in America. It's this third wayism mm-hmm. where they come through the center. And that's kind of what has been tried a lot since and hasn't worked very well more recently. Mm. But it was enormously successful for Tony Blair. And that's also the idea of Blairites, are people who still kind of try to enact that political mission today yeah interesting if i was to take a punt at an idea as to why it wouldn't work so well second time around or whatever i would hazard a guess that there was this golden window where the center was just about sort of it was like the goldilocks type moment of where enough people from both sides sort of fell for it and right like Mm. since then it sort of it, it set a scene for things to move toward the right and the center as you were sort of talking about in terms of how do you define where the center is is actually not Mm. in the center like that isn't really what it is is it it's like in between discourse almost it's almost where the discourse meets and and that is no longer in that goldilocks zone of that third wayism that you mentioned maybe being able to work yeah and the center like has fallen out of politics more recently Mm. really where like i think it was a couple years ago i came to the conclusion myself the center is falling away it's time to pick a side because one of them is going to define the arc of the human story into the future maybe a good case in point there is i always forget her name what was the leader of the lib dems last time in the election joe swinson joe swinson yeah so a lot of context was different but maybe maybe there's you can draw some kind of parallel where in this last general election you could see that boris johnson represented quite a firm right stance in quite direct opposition to a a more firm left Jeremy Corbyn platform. And so there she was trying to do that third wayism. She was trying to go through the center. The way she saw it, or at least the way she explained it, was that she saw both of them as being quite incompetent and very unpopular with the population. So she thought like, this is the Lib Dems time. And she started her campaign with, you know, we're going to get a majority parliament and we're going to 
rule as the Lib Dems. Like, that's what I'm going to do. And all this energy was around her. And in the end, she lost her own seat. So she's not even an MP anymore. And then they dropped her and they're gone and stuff moves on. But it was almost like didn't really get into the conversation. Well, I mean, the culture war that we are now in the depths of is causing the polarization, which potentially is one of the many reasons that that isn't going to work anymore like as in you know that there are people that hold Mm -hmm. strong opinions that i i I still find it amazing how so many elections and polls and things come out at like 52 percent to 48 percent i know what are the chances (laughs) i always think (laughs) which is is just almost like a weirdly polar yeah there must be some form of reaction and action where somehow it seems to even out around a 50 percent mark because it seems very often i always think that what are the chances of that yeah, really common. I mean, like Brexit wasn't the Hillary Clinton yeah. Trump election yeah. like that as well. Really big yeah. things. Loads of polling on, on various issues is like that as well. I think there is also a material element. That illusion of the end of history really was that, you know, somewhere around this center ground, we can just keep tweaking stuff and keep getting better. Mm-hmm. And that now, like a lot of material factors are showing us that that's not true. And so you really have to have bigger solutions. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, when you talk about it that way, you sort of you suddenly realize how big the disparity has mm-hmm. become between the the class division is so much more oh, yeah. apparent now than I've ever been. I mean, it's sometimes hard to differentiate between how much I'm engaging yeah. in it. But it is, it is getting worse quite measurably. Like wealth inequality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a weird thing because I, I know that I'm looking at these things so much more often that I'm sure there's a slight yeah. kind of bias in that. But equally, it's sort of tragic what I'm, what I'm seeing when I'm engaging yeah. with it so it's like it's also a, pro- a massive problem I took those notes we started off just talking there about kind of being members of labor and within labor there is a movement called momentum mm-hmm. which is a membership organization uh, I mean I, I almost don't want to be leave myself up to defining them and, and maybe we'll read their mm-hmm. own points on themselves but momentum is currently in the process of asking its members to vote on 33 different policies that they want to choose eight of to take forward and to take forward into conference which will be happening later this year but also i'll say that i don't know too much about the controversies surrounding momentum because some of the people i've mentioned it to are kind of like well it's a bit complicated all i know is that their main mission is about preserving that left force in labor and trying to bring quite transformative policies and in this case they have a very democratic way of selecting them which we're now both about to participate in and you can hear what we talk about as we do it because we need to vote on this yeah exactly i um i find the same thing when i bring up momentum yeah. i mean it'd be interesting to find a way to dig deeper and, and talk about that as well and if anyone knows anything that they want to tell us about then either write in or yeah. record a message they they say under the title what is momentum they say momentum is a people-powered vibrant movement we aim to transform the Labour Party, our communities in Britain, in the interests of the many, not the few. So they are a socialist movement. And quite a Corbynite legacy, really, I think, because well, that was the same um, strapline that Labour had under Corbyn. So if we dive into the policies, as I say, there's mm-hmm. 33 of them. So we probably won't cover all of those, but we'll sort of, as we touch on them, we'll, we'll go through them. I feel like the first one is, is a good one to start with, which is the £15 minimum wage. Yeah. So, yeah, these are all policies which, like the stuff I was talking about in the intro, are aiming to have transformative effect. And they're all targeting specific problems with society as they see it. And then we are going to have the enviable task of putting them into preferential order. So we can also talk about priorities and things. 
but yeah, the first one up is fifteen dollar. I almost did that. I almost did that. We, I mean, we did a whole episode mm. like that touched on it. Yeah. yeah. So the point being that the, I mean, here we go. This is obvious ignorance. What's the current minimum wage? Like seven twenty five or something. That's shameful. Guess. That's shameful. Yeah, it's seven. It's eight seventy five. Eight seventy two. Sorry. Yeah, eight seventy two. Eight seventy. Eight seventy. No, Jake. That is the actual minimum wage. Mm. And then the living wage. So we've got all these different types of wage. I, I actually personally find it slightly confusing when I try to remember them. For that reason, I blur between what's the living wage, what's the minimum wage, what's the well, the living wage presumably is something that's not enforced. It's more yeah, it's of a calculation. Not... That's yeah. like this is how much it. I, th- I think it's. I'm trying to remember now. Is it even sort of government agreed what the minimum, what the uh, living wage is? Well, I suppose the government's argument would have to be that the minimum wage is the living wage, or they're admitting that they're they're paying starvation wages. That's what I was going to come to. Like the title of the page is minimum wage and national living wage rates. So, like, I mean, this is on the Gov UK website. So, I was going to say if they're if they're confessing right. one is different to the other. <laughs> What do they say is a living wage? I, I'm struggling to find it on the um, on on the website itself. And actually, what I think I'm finding is they're making those words interchangeable with each other. Uh, right. Yeah, and 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 so aged 25 to get the national living wage, the minimum wage will still apply for workers that are 24 under. So the living wage, these rates are for the national living wage, the 25 and over. So yeah, I I, I think that that is what they're doing. They're making their coinage of the word interchangeable. Mm. I also like coinage. <laughs> Yeah, intentional. The Living Wage Foundation, though, mm. says that the UK rate is £9.50 and the London rate is £10.85. Right. So that's like, is that a campaign for living wage? And that's what they say it is. Yeah. As far as I'm aware, these are the people who I keep landing on when I sort of Google it. Yeah. Um, and I'm sort of under the impression that this is the organization who, who campaigns for the actual living wage. Mm. And that's what they've calculated it as being. So I, su- I suppose Momentum's argument is that a living wage would be closer to £15 an hour, especially if you consider people who currently live below the poverty line having to come up and exceed that line rather than just maintain a kind of subsistence lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, and are we just trying to allow people to live? Exactly. <laughs> because, yeah. I mean, also, I'm I'm not going to be fussy about the £4 an hour. If £9.50 was the wage that allowed people to even escape the living situations that they're in, which it wouldn't mm-hmm. be, like, you know... It, I feel like these numbers in terms of the the money that is available when you look at the accumulation within large corporations, everything, you know, like yeah. it's it's negligible. They can easily do that. And so... And every time the minimum wage is raised, miraculously, these businesses are able to pay it, even though the, the kind of scare campaign that everything's going to fall down when it happens, yeah. every single time they're able to pay it. Well, I, I remember, and I can't remember what from, but there was like a really interesting conversation about this around nurseries and care mm. and that, that sort of work. And the fact that, you know, they struggle to pay the bills is, is sort of the, the general vibe about the conversation when it comes to those places. But that the whole point is that the system is draining the support from those organizations, which it could otherwise give, you know, as in the systems which need external stimulus, you know, from government support or whatever, the money is also there to be able to do that as in, you know, we could talk about austerity and America's approach to austerity, mm. and, and, and prove very different points. So yeah, I think that the idea that those businesses couldn't through other means 
meet those wages is crazy yeah because you just have to look at the kind of profits of the people who own them and how huge they are and how they needn't be that huge but also there's that thing where theresa may in the 2017 general election there is no magic money tree well they've found one yeah for covid and not only does it grow money but when you spend that money in the public sphere it makes the tree bigger yeah and that's the kind of the massive lie that's been perpetuated for ages which was kind of seen as common knowledge which is why i was kind of mentioning that stuff that like even the stuff that seems like common knowledge should be challenged yeah out of curiosity what's your view on whether or not may and and sort of politicians at least in the past maybe not so recently genuinely thought that when they said it as in the, the austerity measures and everything which we've been sort of under for however many years now when that was first the approach to surviving the crises born of capitalism you know was that genuinely considered to be the solution and I'm not quite sure on how long America hasn't really been following that same approach, but I feel like they began to prove the point you're making. We've also been proving through COVID and everything sooner than we yeah. did. I think in terms of America, their approach to the magic money tree kind of thing, the main point with that is that we are much worse than them and they are bad. Like, I don't think they reframed it so much as just once so dogged in their pursuit of austerity in every sphere but it's a very good question to what extent did theresa may and the government and previous governments kind of understand that their economics that there were other ways of uh, framing those things not necessarily a question that needs answering in order for us to come to a conclusion that it's wrong you know as in just interesting in terms of their motives i think what it comes up against is that the whole sphere of economics is quite entangled in class conflict i'll say yeah where the kind of idea of trickle-down economics, right, which now is pretty much thrown out of polite discourse, was that the more money that these people at the top make, the more will trickle down and the rising tide will lift all boats. But it was revealed to be uh, more like a hoover from the top and it's trickle up and everything's taken. And so to what extent they knew, I think it depends to what extent did the economists know who were advising them. And that's a whole thorny issue, really. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was mostly expressing a curiosity that I didn't expect to answer. I think also the the point that you've made there about the trickle-down economics and more like the Hoover Up um, mm. and the the parallel that it draws to the privatization of these industries, like the care industry and everything that I was talking about. And you actually, when we spoke a few days ago, mentioned to me something which, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was saying, I seem to remember this, like him holding it up and how heavily yeah. redacted it, it yeah. was. I think that was like my main memory was just the fact that it was a few words on a page among the redactions. But yeah, so do you know anything more about that or even just it, just to mention it? Uh, yeah, so it was in 2019, Jeremy Corbyn got his hands on some documents, which yeah were very redacted, which were about plans for private American healthcare firms to move in on some of the healthcare in this country, especially GP surgeries, which he was kind of laughed away. And Boris Johnson said kind of point blank, this is fabrication. This is nothing. This is distraction. And, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's not known as someone who, who uses fabrication and dishonesty very much. And he was now proven correct because just recently there was um, a whole thing came out about exactly that, that a lot of private American healthcare companies have moved in on GP surgeries in this country and taken over quite a lot of them. So that's just another thing which turned out to be correct. Yeah. And, and talking about that and, and comparing it to 
something that I very recently was shocked by. Um, I can't remember if we've talked about it before in the podcast, but was the school meals with where with the children who were receiving school meals pre-pandemic. Um, obviously, having them almost taken from them multiple times, and Marcus Rashford doing lots to sort of um, actually lead yeah. the the discourse. A far in. more effective politician, yeah, a professional footballer than Keir Starmer so far. Yeah, seemingly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much of a professional footballer Keir Starmer is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But the, yeah, and the school meals, well, the meals that these children were receiving, there was this amazing comparison between, um, I think it was Leeds Council, who uh, had luckily the infrastructure internally to be able to source and fulfill those meals internally as as the council versus the councils who hired private catering firms to do the same thing with the same budget which was something like 30 pounds i mean i'm gonna probably get it wrong if i but 30 pounds in the month or i i mean i was surprised at how small it was but also what came in those hampers you know from leeds council if i'm getting that right was a full box of food that was cleverly cleverly thought through in terms of how it could be spread and then from the private firms was like half an onion a money bag of tuna one snack bar and a banana and and not much more like that was pretty much what they got and that was genuinely what was being given to children in england and i just sort of i always think about it when i think about like the privatization of no yeah that's a very clear example isn't it where the the private sector only has to seek profit that's literally the only Mm. thing it has to seek and only will it be in conversation with other things if that affects the profit like if they have a really bad public image they don't really care unless it starts then the profit starts going down this is the only measurable way they can orient themselves yeah yeah, and that's coming. You know, the greenwashing of the fossil fuel industry. The uh, sort of it's it's they're just about sort of doing the right things to nod in the direction that sort of hopefully keeps Twitter away from calling them out. Yeah. And to be very clear, right, that's where it's capitalism in the interest of capital, yeah. rather than a socialist system in, in the interest of social goods. Yeah, which is a good moment to mention our book club because right now we're reading Michael Heinrich's introduction to the three volumes of Karl Marx's Capital but we're trying to learn about that aren't we the cat like kind of yeah. we're, we're still trying to get there but I mean it's it's a really good function of the the club that we're doing which has been interesting and so yeah. we'll bring that up again later and makes all those things very clear like the, the class conflicts and this leads back to that economic stuff where it's in the interest of capital to pay workers as little as possible like that's in their direct interest, whether they decide to or not, that is in their interest to do. Whereas it's in the workers' interest to be as paid as much as possible to do as little work as possible. That's in their direct interest. And that's where you can talk about analytics without morality even coming into it. That's just direct opposing forces of interest. Definitely. I liked in your introduction, um, the I, I can't remember if uh, you didn't use these words, but you used them the other day with me and I, I quite liked it. And um, But the, like the trappings of capitalism that we now have, mm. in fact, the function it's formed to get us to where we are and the ability to take that onwards, you know, it's yeah. there's something to be said about the fact yeah. that we're now where we are. Absolutely. The time in, in history under early capitalism and primitive accumulation, the extortion were extremely terrible processes, very violent processes. But again, like in a, in a morally neutral way of just stating it, we accumulated resources that now means, you know, we have more than one and a half times the amount of food that can feed everyone on earth, for example. And our problem is distribution. And that is not a problem that can be solved by a system whose sole purpose is to go for maximum profits and relies on infinite growth of which they're 
can't be. Yeah. So if we've reached that impasse and we can pass the baton on, we need the next system now. Yeah, yeah. It makes me think of Yanis Varoufakis, my guy. My Always guy. does. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you're thinking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he did a very interesting thing, which I, I'm going to try and remember the video. If I do, it'll be in the show notes. And he was talking about the amount of money that, that not, is not being reinvested because of the incentives to do that. And so, you know, it's just going into the pockets of people and, and not being invested. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, to bring it back, unless you were going to say something. No, I'm going to say a couple of things. And I know we can't do this on all of them, but <laughs> there just seems to be so many we can just touch on very quickly. Yeah. One, another example of this is very, very recently with Boris Johnson, the Conservatives proposed a 1% wage increase for the nurses after this pandemic. And everyone's been kind of clapping them as heroes. And that will, in due course, become a... Real terms pay decrease pay cut, yeah, pay right, cut yeah, yeah. With, after inflation and you know he says that money's not there and then he's just announced that we're going to almost double our nuclear capacity and it's going to cost oh, i can't remember the figure but it's kind of astronomical it, it was, and no one was talking about uh, increasing our nukes people were talking about trying to uh denuclify nuclearize kind of denuclearize yeah the um international community and it, it also directly breaks international law under some things that we're signed on to yeah it does i've that got money is there i've got it in front of me so in march 2021 the british government published the integrated review titled global britain in the competitive age which reaffirmed the government's commitment to upgrading and maintaining trident as a continuous at sea deterrent the review also announced that the cap for the uk's stockpile of nuclear warheads would rise from 180 to 260 the first yeah. time it has risen since the Cold War due to the evolving security environment. Yeah, and I'll put a um, picture of the bar chart that shows what the increase would look like compared to other countries, just to show you how much it costs and how little it makes a difference internationally and how I think one of those nukes that we have could could kill more people than live in our country overall. If, if you drop that on a population centre, that will kill tens and tens of millions. So yeah, Johnson announced in... November 2020, that the investment of £16.5 billion into defence over four years, representing a share of over 2.2% of GDP as the conclusion of the integrated review. Yeah. Yeah. The money's there. The money is there. And then let's just say very, very briefly, we'll, we'll probably dedicate an episode or at least a large part of an episode to it, but let's just say about Keir Starmer very quickly, because mm-hmm. we might as well be upfront about it. I mean, what's your opinion? Of Keir Starmer? Yeah. Well, I mean... I I sort of very quickly realized that Keir Starmer wasn't a leader that um I I would have if I knew him so I I have confessed and uh, checked in this baggage um before but I double baggage check sir <laughs> yeah I know I'm, I'm it was vibrating <laughs> I'm a risk it, I wasn't a member of Labour during the leadership race or election or um, when uh, Keir Starmer was voted in. So I didn't sort of, what I would do now is obviously research every every candidate and um, and vote. But because I didn't have that kind of coming in, I've come into Labour with Keir Starmer as the leader and just sort of immediately realised that he's not doing anything I agree with. But also, I think my earliest sort of impressions of him was that he wasn't doing anything. Like as in, it was sort of abstaining from votes and critical ones as well. And you know what he was pushing Johnson on today after all these things that we've been talking about? He was saying that you promised not to reduce military spending and you have slightly reduced military spending so it's pushing on military spending yeah from the right seemingly yeah 
I mean, the other thing that he, he's done uh, a lot throughout COVID is wait until the very last minute to yeah. call out and say, like, you know, the Tories must do the thing that they're about to do and that he knows they're about to do because they've sort of announced it that morning or something. He, I don't think he once in recent memory or or at least in memory which was resonant enough for it to stick with me called the Tories out well in advance just saying this is what needs to be done like it's always been if anything just to cover himself yeah and these are kind of critiques in good faith because if you have any arguments or you know any arguments for why he's doing a good job we would love to know them and and love to change our minds on that but and you know in the spirit of the intro with talking about there's lots of different tactics and if they bring anything positive then let's like build on them but his angle he tacked to the right in order to get a bump in the polls and his polling's going down really badly. So he's he's giving us nothing so far. And he's like the leader of the party, of our party. Well, he's he's um, a man of research groups and um, yeah. sort of marketing almost where he gets told that the Union Jack is uh, good to have behind. And so he released his paper. I mean, we talked briefly, yeah. I think, about that presentation that went round in a previous episode. Yeah. Um, so he's very much a man of what he thinks is going to get him. It's not a democratic process that he's going through to try and find out like what his membership wants or anything. No. It's it's what he thinks is going to. I don't even know what his motives are. Do, do you know much about like kind of what he's trying to do? The arguments were about whether he was kind of accidentally doing badly or almost purposely directly assaulting the left in the party. And I don't know that that's a bit of it's a bit like uh, the question about previous governments, economists, where it's yeah. like it's it's difficult to know the particular motivations. But we we definitely know the effects. Like every time I get an email through now talking about Labour, do you want to help out with election stuff? It has a real kind of dampening effect on activism when the kind of movements and the party are so far to the left of the leader who's lukewarm. The best summary or the best simple way of putting it that someone did an article on that kind of went viral was just Keir Starmer is a wet wipe. Yeah. We don't want a wet wipe. Uh, I sent you um, a video the other day, didn't I? Of the, mm. I want Let's put that in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, we should do that, yeah. We might put that in the show notes. <laughs> that was very good. The other thing I was going to say there was, I am surprised that with everything we've just spoken about, and like you say, it's all in good faith, but with everything we've just spoken about, that there hasn't been, to my knowledge, again, correct me if I'm wrong, a vote of no confidence in Keir Starmer. No. But there were multiple in Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. And if I'm right in saying this, there have been local groups of Labour membership that have tried to approach that. And people are stripped of the whip, is it? Like when at that level or not so much when you're not an MP, but like they've been stripped of membership, like something or other. Yeah. 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 Lots of lots of CLPs around the country have been talking about, especially. What's a CLP? Um, constituency Labour Party. Yeah. So, so where the MP, so, so like for example in Bournemouth we have a Conservative MP, but the CLP is the person who ran for MP as Labour, of which there are members, local members, and lots of those CLPs have tried to discuss the issue of Jeremy Corbyn's whip being removed, and lots of stuff about no confidence in Keir Starmer, and a lot of them have either been thrown out the party for it or threatened with that and so a lot of people are very walking on eggshells a bit and also the party is kind of still licking their wounds from 2019 yeah so the 15 pound minimum wage yes (laughs) (laughs) it's important right i mean yeah there's a bullet point list here of, of of other reasons i think we've done a good job of covering why that's an important 
policy yeah and one that i personally am gonna put a high in my list mm-hmm. what about you this is one of those ones where it's kind of everyone you read you're like okay that goes to the top okay, yeah that goes to the <laughs> yeah. top and so there's a lot of really big stuff but yeah that's very important and it's also important about just reprioritizing where our spending goes and where our priorities as a nation as a society are mm-hmm. very important definitely so the second one on this list yeah is abolish the monarchy yeah so for that one <laughs> refer to episode three yeah the royal subject yes um we can now reference ourselves <laughs> we've made it <laughs> so this one is talking about ending all the protocols and conventions which allow members of the royal family to have a direct influence on government policy and legislation i can have a much shorter response to this if you want do it very important not gonna happen the third one <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so why not going to happen just because i don't know because you know in this episode we're talking about electoralism and we're talking about you know trying to get our party in power with the best policy set possible yeah and with bearing the kind of forces of that system in mind and bearing in mind that yeah at least three quarters of the population are very favorable of the queen and the royal family in general it's not going to happen yeah. clive lewis who's someone i'm interested in as a future leader of the party he was talking about this idea in the leadership race he was about sixth or fifth in the thing because he didn't get enough nominations from the the unions to carry on but i thought he was a very credible person running and actually i would have preferred him over rebecca long bailey who Mm -hmm. i eventually voted Mm for uh he spoke about the abolition of the monarchy and it was kryptonite from every angle Mm. he got torn apart on it so that's something in our we need to do but it's probably not right for right now yeah what do you think well, I, I was just going to say, like, you don't think after episode three of Trip to the Left, like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the world feels differently, the, the country feels differently. Well, no, I'm, I mean, I, I have noticed a, well, a word from inside the room, you know, that I, I spend my time in, that there seems to be a slight change in people's mindsets around the subject. Yeah. Um, but I'm not saying that it's anywhere near enough to make what you've just said very true. I didn't, when I asked you why you're saying it's not going to happen, I didn't frame reading the policy in yeah. the in the way of, you know, we are now, we're looking at policies with a mindset of what is going to be the most yeah. compelling to run. So that's the two, that's the two, two things to look at, right? Mm. When we're speaking, normally we're talking about what do we want society yeah. to be like? And this is what do we want to run on? Yeah. And at this point, maybe we should hold to the Corbyn line of needs a bit of work. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I agree. I like that. Okay, cool. Well, that one's whilst a big subject. We've done an episode on it, and I agree with yeah. what you just said. So the third one is build back fairer, attack poverty and inequality. Well, I mean, good title. I'm I'm. Yeah, we need we need. What's the meat of this? <laughs> yeah. So the the meat is it talks about benefits increased to a livable level, two hundred and sixty pounds per week, universal credit. Extension and strengthening of furlough and self-employment schemes. Mm-hmm. Increase the minimum wage. And <laughs> interestingly, mm-hmm. this is sort of bedding in something from another one. And this one's to £12 an hour. Scrapping exemptions and differentials. Action to increase wages, substantial increases for public sector workers. The right to isolate on full pay. Improved sick pay for all. 100% of wages for all sickness periods. Repeal of all anti-union laws banning of zero hours contracts, reversal of all cuts since 2010, increased funding, Mm. comprehensive reversal of privatization and outsourcing, full public ownership of health and social care, abolition of no recourse to public funds, 
building at least 100,000 council homes a year and the creation of millions of secure, well-paid public jobs in services and green industry. And if you made it through those with us, then we're going to talk about them. So yeah, so this is, you can see like a, a wider policy set that this isn't just the minimum wage goes up to this. It kind of includes an, an increase, not as much of the minimum wage, among other things, which it seems here is specifically aiming to build back better as in after this pandemic and kind of as we come out of the pandemic, making things better than they were before by using all this kind of new political imagination that people have to really change change systems. Yeah, I mean, actually, a couple of those points relate specifically to the pandemic and in terms of like the right to isolate on full pay um, and the extension of the furlough scheme. Or the next pandemic. We're not ready to talk about that yet. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready, but um, (laughs) we'll do that. I'm going to take that down. I'm taking down these little things that would be interesting to talk about. One of the things was we've brought up a few words throughout the episode, which um, we need to define, but we also try to at points, we've done it with a few, probably can't do it with all as they hit, but we'll also try and cover Mm -hmm. them. So um, if you listen to every episode with us, then hopefully we'll gradually build our own vocabulary and uh, you can do it with us because yeah. I'm, I'm still learning a lot of it. So yeah, there's there's a lot. It actually does a, a lot to bundle in other policies. Yeah. And, and w- with that in mind, I would, a question to you would be, do you think that as far as like kind of putting priority order on ones that we feel are going to sort of have the best impact for what this is looking to achieve, do you think that whilst I agree with everything in this list that we just read out, is there anything in there that you see as contentious in a way which is going to mean that our hierarchy of prioritization would be best placed on something that doesn't cover so much? Yeah, good question. I mean, uh, this isn't even really a policy. This is a, a set of policies. I know. In one way, it's a bundle of good things, which like, you know, put it at number one, hope a load yeah. of other people see it that way. And then we get one with mm. about 10 in there that kind of land. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not nothing jumps out to me. I think it's it's quite well crafted in the way that they're all relatively modest proposals, but taken together will have a massive impact. Yeah. So, I mean, how how do Momentum then go and decide? We've got this one that says increase minimum wage to £12 per hour and the £15 now minimum wage policy mm-hmm. also. I'm assuming the best one, like, as in the most advantageous sort of to the people would be the one that gets through. I mean, I guess if they both pass, then it might be the case that the minimum wage one would be to £15 an hour and then plus everything else. Yeah, that's what I thought, yeah. Yeah, and then also it's quite good. You can see here uh, who these policies were submitted by, and this is... Uh, Northeast Momentum, Stevenage Momentum, and Southampton Momentum. Mm. Okay, actually, I've got an idea. So one of these bullet points that we just spoke about was around building at least 100,000 council homes uh, a year. And the next policy that we're going to look at in this list is build council housing and end homelessness. So if I jump off this one and move on to that policy for for a second. Yeah, hopefully they're interconnected. So there'll be more and more ones which touch on each other. Yeah. So actually, immediately when I'm reading this, it sort of talks about the retrofitting of council housing to cut greenhouse gases. And I had a very interesting conversation not too long ago with someone about the cost efficiency, how cost effective it is to retrofit houses versus, you know, sort of like building new greenhouses and stuff. So that stood out as being something really good it, 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 bundled into this one is the repeal of the 2012 anti-squatting legislation hmm. do you know much about that side of things i know that squatting not in the gym in uh unoccupied housing because <laughs> I, I, I could do like 50 of those mate <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i also couldn't 
you weren't allowed to and they're going to let you do it again um <laughs> yeah but i think that's i mean i don't know specifically much about it i know it's a big thing among kind of anarchist circles is to occupy unoccupied buildings and like use them for social reasons kind of against the state's permission and it's basically the idea that if there's an empty building that hasn't been touched and isn't owned if you're squatting in it for long enough then you, you might as well use it because it, in that way we have more empty houses than homeless people for example so it's, it's that kind of thing so i, th- I think what was this specifically? Repeal the anti-squatting legislation. The Vagrancy Act and all legislation that criminalises people for being homeless and the use of antisocial behaviour legislation against begging and rough sleeping. Yeah, so it's basically back off the homeless people. Exactly. If, they, if they find shelter they can use that's not being used, that shouldn't be criminalised. Yeah, exactly. I think that the fact that, well, you just said it, and I'm going to double check that this is what you said, but I also think I've heard it before, that there are more vacant houses than homeless people. Yeah. Yeah. By a large margin. This is the same thing where it's, it's the problem is distribution. Yeah. And because the problem is distribution and because it's never talked about what already exists very much, that poses solutions that politicians don't want to use very often. But in the same way, we have more food than that can feed the entire world. We have more houses than can house everyone. We can't distribute them through capitalism very well. Yeah. I wish I had a brain where I could check my memory bank and remember yeah. this other thing that i was talking to someone about the other day which was around the amount of food waste that's that's in in england and there's a good and also forced um what's what's that called when they destroy stocks of food oh it like enforce for scarcity i think where like it's in the company's interest to destroy large amounts of food to to hike the prices up yeah they do that with designer clothes as well like as yes. in rather than put it on sale or whatever they Kind yeah, of, and, yeah. They don't, and they don't want their, their clothes like worn by poor people because yeah. it will associate the brand with that. Yeah. And there's also another example that was really clear in America a few weeks ago was when a supermarket suddenly lost power and all their food went into a skip that was all usable food because it was no longer being refrigerated. And people wanted to come and take that food because everything was down and they couldn't eat it. But police were posted around the skip to stop people taking food. That's just ridiculous. And, you know, one of the reasons that is like a fair enough reason, kind of, is that there's something about if they eat the food and get sick, the supermarket might be sued or something. But it's more speaks to a kind of example of a contradiction. Yeah. And I would go as far as to say that the fact that they could get sued is also stupid. But like, I mean, and and the fact that that's the the step that would be taken to defend the action. Yeah. That was their justification rather than perhaps the reason yeah no exactly exactly i think there's some brands as well that are taking action against this i mean this is something that like kind of we can hope for at least in the short term as a a means to like kind of combat some of it but obviously we want to more meaningfully change things i think if i'm not wrong in saying this i don't want to give them good press uh, if this isn't true but counting on you gregs um i think that they give all of their unused food to the local YMCA and organizations like that. I think there are businesses that do things like that and that's what they should be doing. I mean, there there isn't a good reason not to be doing that, is there? Whereas, you know, in, in the future, there's other things that need to be done as well to take it further. Yeah, and it's also getting our priorities in the right places, not where we assume things. Like, for example, it's often talked about that flights, you know, people who preach about climate change and yet they fly to somewhere to talk about it are kind of painted as hypocrites who are then you shouldn't listen to. But, you know, flights in total, including all commercial, all business flights, all moving of resources, only account for about 3% of our carbon footprint. Yeah. 
And I mean, it would be lovely to have electric planes and um, and all of that, which absolutely, let's do it. In the meantime, there are ways to offset your emissions. It's best to do that close to where you emit them. But we should do a whole episode on that, especially because you've been pursuing those kind of things yourself. Yeah, no, I'd be up for that. I'll take that yeah. take that note down as well. Actually, yeah. yeah, earlier on today, I had a really interesting call about similar things. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the plan for me, at least moving forward is, you know, any, I, I'm already offset my, well, I mean, I'm not, I don't have any emissions other than using the tech that I've got and yeah. the other things I buy at the moment, because I'm not leaving this place. <laughs> but when I start to, again, I want to offset any travel that I do, not just by planting trees, but also remove the uh, carbon yeah and we could talk about the importance of that and also the larger things which need to change around around individuals yeah and then i'll very quickly say the idea of mutual aid which i think is something we'll probably talk about in another episode as well where that is the kind of left's answer to charity where all the failings of charities are supposedly better addressed through mutual aid which is the idea that through networks of people you directly go to the people you're trying to help and ask them what they need because you know they know better than charities which are kind of assuming they need these things and then trying to create networks that can get those people those things and it's happening a lot during covid because certain people can't go out certain people can't do these things and so people pass stuff around and help each other out and that that means your society is already prepared for different kinds of disaster that charities can't really solve imagine what would happen if all the money uh put into the prison system was invested in supporting people and avoiding them probably landing up in those systems like whether it be um episode four world tour arrested development yeah um yeah that's it so i mean the other interesting parallel it sort of mentions in this policy is reverse austerity cuts and outsourcing in homelessness services implement a national housing first system with floating support to house all those experiencing homelessness regardless of immigration status Mm. oh let me say one really short thing on that uh, which is just a thought to think about (laughs) oh i like those which is how governments treat illegal immigrants is how they would treat the rest of us if they thought they could get away with it i was watching the talk between you're gonna have to say your guy's name because i'm gonna get it wrong Zizek. Yeah. And my guy, Yanis. Yeah. <laughs> got, got you in there twice, Yanis. <laughs> Listening. Um, and I haven't actually got all the way into that. I mean, the title says mm. that Assange is in that. Um, yeah. And you've watched. Yeah, he, he calls in. Cool. All right. That makes more sense. So yeah. <laughs> I was <laughs> like. To the embassy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They start the first 30 minutes. Can, we'll put this in the show notes as well. It's a two hour conversation yeah. that I don't think like kind of everybody's going to yeah. love because, you know, um, we'll try and make it so you don't have to watch two hours of people talking um, and you can listen to us for just under that instead. Exactly one hour, nine minutes, maybe. In the first 30 minutes, and I haven't got past the first 30 minutes, talk about immigration and they talk about the fact that borders and all of that rhetoric is there to breed anti-immigration mentality, which, you know, feeds the various other forms of discourse around the subject. And And, and again, again, just to lift the curtain very quickly, it's very possible that borders cause more harm than they prevent. I think it's, I I consider it like definite. I mean, I'd put put my uh, name to that quote go on and do your worst uh, I, I definitely can't see how it's not i mean it, it increases human trafficking obviously if you've got, got a board up you've then got the i mean it depends also how broadly you want to cast the net of the impact that 
the policies cause for the people that are impacted yeah. by them, by the, for the minorities. The amount of problems it causes yeah. them, I mean, you're going to say something much more compelling than I'm able to get on my but mouth also, right now, Also, so. a lot of the disasters that compel people to become migrants are proliferated by the nations which then don't accept them. For example, wars in the Middle East fed by the US. And also, again, another another little thinky quote, which for some reason keep popping up today, is the kind of discussion around people in immigrants coming in on boats to countries and how, you know, that's dangerous and we don't want them and all this kind of rhetoric is like people don't put their children on boats if they think the water isn't safer than the land. They are fleeing. They, they are leaving their home and fleeing to another country. You know, what would it take to make you who is listening to this, get your stuff together and leave the country straight away? Yeah. Well, that's another reason I think that it is worth watching the video that I mentioned, because one of the quotes or stories that Zizek mentions... What did you think of Zizek? I, I thought that um, he was very, very interesting, very compelling. The first thing I was going to say there would have <laughs> was going to be that it would be worth him holding the microphone. <laughs> but that's all I've seen of him, and he, he kept moving his head away from it. Very interesting. Yeah, really, like, kind of really... Um, kinetic almost yeah yeah, um, yeah yeah and obviously very grounded in his thought like i mean i've, I've now seen him for 30 minutes and i'm gonna see a lot more of him i hope yeah he's written a lot about the pandemic and its possible impact on changing of societies but go on you were saying he was say he was saying something that because they're having this talk the day after or very recent like very close to a terror attack in france yeah um and he was quoting a an immigrant who was near to that attack who mm. said something along the lines of, I feel for the people involved. I had to live that every day before I came here. And yeah. the event obviously was plastered on every, you know, it was a big, big, big thing. And I, obviously rightly so in terms of how bad it was. Yeah. It happens daily in some countries. I, yeah, I knew you were going to come to that. It's like the idea that in the Western world and in the kind of wealthier world, we feel kind of entitled to our walls and the kind of bad stuff's going on over there. And if anything flicks up for a second here, it's kind of a tragedy, mm. international tragedy. But this is this is reality all the time of people in other countries. And a lot of the time they're being proliferated by Western powers. Like, for example, another potentially controversial point is that the reaction by the US after 9-11 has done hundreds of times more damage than 9-11 yeah dick cheney is someone who i am yet to know more about but like kind of from what i watched the, the film vice mm. i recommend if someone if people haven't watched that it's uh kind of eye-opening in a hollywood way you know um mm -hmm. and it, i just found that really interesting and th that was mo a lot motivated by did someone play george bush at that yeah but did he look like george bush I, to be honest, it's, that's not my main memory. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, uh, I just wondered who, who played George Bush. And what that film sort of really made me think of was exactly what you're talking about there in terms of the the, Amer the response of the US to to what happened there. The the opportunistic sort of response on in, yeah. on part on the part of many of the people involved on in the immediate aftermath. I've actually watched a, a, a <laughs> this is where I start like kind of um reading out my film list. But um 
a TV series, which I'm yet to draw a full opinion on, Billions, is based on someone who traded the stock market over the 9-11 attacks and, you know, accumulated so much wealth in the impact that it had on the stock market. There was a lot of opportunistic, uh, you know, responses to that. And and yeah, that's just one of well, them. Trump, Trump called in laughing about how now the Trump Tower was the tallest building in New York right after 9-11. How can I still learn things about Trump that I'm like, <laughs> oh, God. So that that bill, that that policy, sorry, um, yeah. <laughs> was build council housing and end homelessness. Yeah. We are on policy five of 33. So stay tuned for the next 24 hours <laughs> as yeah. we try and do a 24 Going all night. <laughs> <laughs> so the sixth topic is create power for renters. Um, that's a, a good one, actually. Um, so... Housing is a universal right. Everybody has the right to a secure, affordable, and decent home. There's a lot more to the policy, but um, I think that in itself yeah. covers it quite well. Yeah, and it's it's roughly housing again. Uh, this is something that there's an organisation called Acorn, yeah, who are a, a more radical tenants union, which are kind of trying to grow themselves across the UK, which you can look into if you're a renter. See if they have a branch in your location. I think one's just starting up in Bournemouth. And yeah, tenants' rights are important. Yeah, definitely. The next one is directly fund early years education and care, guarantee provision for all disadvantaged children and address the gender pay gap. Yeah, so I think that's related to the idea that a lot of childcare is very gendered work and it's overwhelmingly done by women. And a lot of women's work isn't paid as generously as men's work. Is that a priority? If you work in early years, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Affordable quality and public nurser, uh, nurseries that serve deprived communities, support children with SEND, and also those learning ESL were already struggling due to underfunding before COVID-19. And so they are pledging to fund providers directly, introducing a national pay scale, driving up pay for the overwhelmingly female workforce, as you've said. Oh, yeah. 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 And so the, the, those acronyms were special needs learning and uh, English as a second language. So, you know, that kind of schooling is very important. And also the parents of those people, the carers and guardians of those people, uh, those children, when struggling to find childcare that they can afford and having to work full time or more to afford rent, because, you know, this is where we start to tie all these things together. Rent is very high, defended by tenants' rights. Minimum wage is very low, helped by increasing the minimum wage, uh, the gender pay gap here, and the fact that people can't get childcare while they work. They're all connected. Definitely. Ending institutional Islamophobia. Right. So very good uh, connection there with post 9-11 stuff. Yeah. And, you know, this is, again, the criticism that anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, which is a problem has been talked about so much more than Islamophobia in the Conservative Party and in society in general, which is much worse, I would say. Yeah, agreed. That's like another episode, isn't it, really? Yeah. yeah. We'll ride the policy carousel for now and then we'll come back to stuff in meaty things. Yeah, yeah. So a four-day working week for society in which we work to live, not live to work. Mm. I like that one. Mm. That's something that, yeah. If that was what everybody did... The difficulty is if not everybody doing it, really, because then you're not around like, you know, I mean, especially with I'm thinking kind of too niche to my own sort of life in that sense. But I'm just thinking if I was to try and do that, 
there would be just a day a week where people are expecting things from you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it kind of has to change in a broad way, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and this is another one that statistics will undermine the common sense position quite often. I'm pretty sure, and I'll look for sources and put them in the show notes, that it hasn't been proven that reducing the work week by day means less productive work is done. No, it also, this the note in front of me here is really interesting. It says that throughout history, shorter working hours have been used during times of crisis and economic recession as a way of sharing existing work more equally across the economy, mm. which is a really good point. I mean, yeah. And as automation increases with all these kind of forces that are developing as we kind of move through history, the aim should be to try to reduce the labor time that we need to formally have to kind of keep society changing and prevents us from pursuing other things which can be just as important for contributing to society. Yeah, definitely. Global climate justice. I mean, this has got to be up in the top eight, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, We must keep global temperature rises below 1.5 degrees Celsius. The communities hit hardest by climate change contributed least to the problem. Yeah, And the UK spends billions of pounds per year on fossil fuel s- subsidies and is a key jurisdiction for the enforcement of globally accrued debt. And that word in there, global, is very important because a lot of times also how, how nations meet their climate targets or at least get closer to them is they just offshore their production to other places which do, do as much or more. So that's why it has to be an international movement to reduce emissions. Yeah, yeah. And this is now this is now talking about one of the crises I outlined in the introduction about the climate crisis. A lot of the ones we've spoken about today have been about the crisis of capitalism and some of them have touched on the crisis of the pandemic that we're currently in. Yeah. And they're all interconnected as well in their own way, aren't they? I mean, yeah. sort of capitalism is driving the global climate crisis because I mean a lot of the incentives that are derived of a capitalist society are the ones which are propping up the the fossil fuel industry as well and make it very difficult to deal with the pandemic as well yeah yeah I think I saw today I mean I don't know too much about the specifics of their society but Japan has a larger population than the UK a higher population density than the UK their deaths were hugely lower and their economic impact was hugely lower very interesting so as we mentioned, there are 33 of these and <laughs> as evident, as made obvious by the first three of them, they need a lot more time to be talked about properly. And these things do need to be talked about properly. And especially in a format like this, I think it'd be really a shame to gloss over such big topics, which we'll obviously come back to anyway, but also like kind of not give them the, the moment that they need to, to be properly like broken down. Do you agree that sort of the ones we've covered they formed quite a good circle. Mm, nice little cross section. Yeah. A circle with a cross section in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, crosshairs of this is what we're aiming yeah. at. Yeah. There you go. So, how about we, between this episode and next episode, we put our vote in for the top eight? So, what we've been asked to do, I can't remember if we touched on this, we've been asked to rank all of them, or at least all the ones that we're interested in voting on. Yeah. And the top eight, was it in total across the membership, will be what they then take forward as what they're representing? Yeah, what they take to conference as yeah. momentum's policy focus. Yeah, so we're going to do that. We're going to rank all the ones that we find uh, important and, and kind of we'll report back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I think that it would make much better listening experience if we do that. And we'll also take notes down, as we have done today already, you know, on many other subjects that we're going to break out into other episodes about. Yeah. 
So I guess before we wrap up, having spoken about what we have spoken about, what are you gravitating towards in terms of the ones you most you feel strongest about? Let's maybe both touch on like around eight very quickly that we're looking at as the kind of ones we might put to the top. Yeah. Um, because we're basically what we're doing here is trying to create a personal policy set that we think would kind of change things, yeah. have the most impact. And that can include ones we haven't actually gone through yet. So okay. some of the, some of the stuff I'm looking at that I definitely think will be high up for me would be global climate justice policy. Mm -hmm. I think that that's kind of the most important, the most crucial and kind of ticking problem that is also furthest from being solved in a lot of ways. Then I would look at things like media reform, because I think we'll talk about that in future. But again, that's the kind of the media sits between what gets done and what the public see. And that relationship is so crucial to what we're going to be doing. And that's also what we're trying to do with the podcast. So I think some kind of reform in the media would be very important to making more policies like that able to pass. I would look at UBI, universal basic income, because I think that's a debate which kind of if, if that became near the center of political discourse, a lot of things become possible. It kind of changes the conversation, really. Mm -hmm. I have questions about it, um, just to familiarize myself with it more, but also like kind of know that it would break out. Well, uh, my main thing is, how does that relate? What's the relationship of that with the minimum wage that we spoke about? And Yeah, stuff? well, UBI is that you receive payment, not for work, it's not a wage. It's like yeah. welfare, but it, yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. is eligible. And it yeah. kind of is a is a minimum amount, or at least to start with, to live on. So it's basically, if you can't work, it means that you can survive. Yeah, yeah. And it changes our wage system in quite an important way that would make a lot of changes then possible, I think. And the way you do that is very controversial. It's an area of discourse. Different people have very different ideas of how to do it, but I think that's a very important conversation to be had. Then another one, in the same way as the media, talking about proportional representation, Again, I think that would change the system so much and increase kind of democratic possibilities so much that, again, lots more things become possible. So I think what I'm going to focus on in my top eight policies are kind of transformative ones which can change the system within which these conversations are being had in a way that gives our movement a lot more power. So when there's more democracy, our representation is proportional to votes. More parties are possible. More policy is possible. More change is possible. And again, we're so far from making that change that that needs to start now, I think. Yeah, and no, I completely agree. I, I'll, I'll basically be framing um, my responses in the same way. Ones that stand out to me alongside pretty much every single one that you just said there, including the universal basic income, which, you know, I'm, I'm, I didn't associate with the title, but now remember um, as, as what you've described and, and think is really important. The other policies that stand out as I sort of scroll further down, I'm quite keen on the drug policy reform. I mean, green green jobs revolution stood out. That's just again very important to say. Any kind of big scale decarbonisation and green infrastructure project, it's just so many jobs, so much needs doing, and so many people are unemployed. It's kind of a no brainer. Yeah, absolutely. Justice for Palestine um, stood out and stopped selling arms to the Saudi led coalition in Yemen. And we're, we're definitely doing an episode on that. Yeah, and everything you said, as I, as I said, like kind of, I'm I'm keen in those, keen on those as well. So those all stand out to me. We'll do episodes on the ones that really are important from the rest. We'll report back next episode on what we've voted for, and then probably even use that as a bit of a jump off point for a couple of those subjects. In our pick and mix of policies, what we're going to put in our bag? Yeah. <laughs> so for this week, I think that's a really good mix of subjects. Yeah, just got to take it to the till, weigh it, and then 
Pay for it. Yeah, bloody capital. <laughs> and so, ways for people to help us out, if you wouldn't mind and be so kind, we would really appreciate it if you shared this podcast with one other person, someone else that you think would find it interesting and would benefit from knowing a little bit more about these um, subjects because we know how difficult it can be to immerse yourself in them and we're trying to do some of that on your behalf as well you know but we'll also always include as many links as we can in the show notes so take a look at that among them as well as the interesting content that we are referencing there is a link to our discord so if you want to join the discord to be a part of the book club to start off with but among the community as well please do and we're putting those together i mean we've got a nice little community going there i mean it's it's a small start but it's a really good start and then also patreon it is very much in the works, possibly live before this even goes out. So please do check the show notes for it. There is a link there. We would appreciate anything that you might be able to put towards the recording of the podcast. There are just a few expenses that we're looking to cover at first. And then beyond that, it'll go towards producing new types of content and new things, uh, exclusive content, perhaps even for yeah. those people who do support us. So take a look at that. And also, we're really keen to have some people send us messages in. Specifically you. <laughs> So you, can you can you do that now, please? And send us a question, a recording. Let us know in the recording if you're happy for us to broadcast it. And if not, then you know yeah. we'll, we'll happily just listen to it and respond. And if you don't want to do it that way, then email podcast at triptothelift.com and uh, we'll read your email and we'll have a chat about that as well. So, yeah. yeah, this should be a two-way street and it'll be a conversation. And also, who's going to be first featured in the podcast? You are. You bring the cheese? I'll bring the crackers.